Welcome to the Ace Tip Podcast, where we translate science into sense, so you can learn about research in the justice and health fields without having to access or read a lengthy journal article or report. I'm Danielle Rudes, your host, and I'll do most of the work for you. All you have to do is listen. ACED is a cool and super helpful product brought to you by the NIDA-funded Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, or JCOIN, through the Coordination and Translation Center, CTC, housed at the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University. For more information, check out jcoinctc.org. Now, let's get started. In the past 20 years or so, the United States has faced an ongoing battle which, according to the U.S. Department of Health, claimed nearly 50,000 U.S. lives in 2019 alone and has reversed a years-long pattern of increases in U.S. life expectancies. But unlike conventional battles, these lives weren't lost to guns or bombs, but to chemical compounds called opioids. According to the National Safety Council's 2019 analysis, for the first time in history, the odds of dying from an accidental opioid overdose is higher than those of dying in a car accident. So how did we get here? What caused this battle and has claimed tens of thousands of lives? According to Brendan Soliner and Colleen Berry, two factors largely spurred the onset of this problem the overprescription and production of opioids, followed by an increase in heroin and fentanyl production. While heroin has been around for centuries, the current U.S. opioid epidemic was precipitated by large pharmaceutical companies in pursuit of a profit. These companies overstated the effectiveness and non-addictive qualities of opioids such as OxyContin. And with the safe marketing of these drugs, medical professionals began providing legitimate prescriptions for opioid pain pills, leading to rising cases of misuse and abuse. The demand for opioids grew, and less legitimate prescription markets rose to meet that demand. And when people were unable to obtain legal prescriptions for opioids, the black market production of heroin and fentanyl rose to fill the need. If the abuse and misuse of pain pills began the epidemic, then heroin and fentanyl continued it. So how are lawmakers and medical professionals finding solutions to this devastating public health crisis? What about practitioners in the criminal legal system? Research widely recommends the use of medicinal treatments for preventing overdose and helping people get their opioid use under control. In fact, there are medications that can decrease opioid misuse, increase treatment compliance, improve life expectancy, and decrease contact with the criminal legal system. So you might be thinking, great, a solution. Well, that's that then. What shall we worry about now? But of course, if you're listening to this podcast, you're likely not thinking that at all. You have some idea of just how far we are from having systems of care that effectively treat opioid use disorder. We are not currently winning the battle. This season of podcasts will focus on the science of medications for opioid use disorder, what they are, how they work, and how we know they work. It will also focus on barriers and opportunities for improving systems of care aimed at tackling the opioid epidemic in both justice and community-based settings. So let's dive into season two of these podcasts with a brief overview of medications that treat opioid misuse or opioid use disorder, as it's called. Medications for opioid use disorder come in two main forms, the type that acts similar to opioids 
and the type that blocks the effects of opioids. The first group are called agonists or partial agonists. This group includes methadone and buprenorphine. The second group are called antagonists and include naltrexone or Vivitrol. I'm sure you won't be surprised to know that the more similarly a medication resembles opioids, the more stigma it has and the harder it is to provide. Brendan Soliner and Colleen Berry tell us that while current research strongly supports medication treatments for opioid use disorders, only one-fifth of individuals with opioid use disorders receive treatment. If we know what treatments can increase life expectancy, help with physical symptoms, decrease opioid misuse, and improve lives, then why aren't we doing it? Well, According to researchers Ingvald Olsen and Joshua Sharfstein, one explanation is stigma. Stigma is the mark of shame or discredit, an undesired differentness. With the opioid crisis, we stigmatize both individuals with opioid use disorder and by association, the very medications that can address the disorder and help folks. Olson and Sharfstein argue there are four main factors generating and perpetuating stigma around opioid use disorder and medication interventions. First is how those on the outside of the illness perceive opioid use disorder. Even though it is a medical illness, many, including those in the medical field, believe that opioid misuse is a product of choice or free will. Second, Because opioid use disorder treatment typically occurs apart from other aspects of health care, co-occurring substance abuse, mental and physical health disorders may go undiagnosed and untreated. Without a holistic approach to health, persistent symptoms of other disorders may be incorrectly attributed to the medication intervention. Language surrounding medical interventions also perpetuates stigma. Words like clean or dirty, in reference to drug screening results, for example. As we know, words have great power to stigmatize different groups. Lastly, the criminal justice system embodies this stigmatization in its actions by failing to refer those with opioid use disorder to treatment and rarely prescribing medications to individuals with opioid use disorder while incarcerated. Stigma matters insofar as it affects how a person is treated, whether they get help for their opioid use, and the kind of help they get. When we think of stigmatized groups, most of us would agree that there is a stigma attached to drug use, and in particular, intravenous drug use. And that stigma becomes even greater when the drug user is pregnant. When a pregnant woman has an opioid use disorder and is also involved in the criminal legal system, they encompass many layers of stigma. In their 2020 article, Andrea Natel and colleagues explored medications for opioid use disorder in pregnancy in a state women's prison facility. According to Natel and colleagues, women who abstain from drug use while incarcerated are at high risks of overdose death after their release. The authors conducted a retrospective cohort study of pregnant women with opioid use disorder incarcerated within North Carolina State Women's Prison from 2016 to 2018. This means that they looked at a data set that included all sorts of information about women incarcerated in the facility from the years 2016 to 2018, and they tried to answer a few questions. 
They wanted to know how many pregnant women with opioid use disorder in the cohort or group received treatment and what type of medication they received. Also, how did they get it? How often did they get it? And whether they were referred to a community-based provider upon release. And whether there were certain characteristics of individuals that made it more likely they would receive treatment. They found that women in their sample had limited access to medications for opioid use disorder. Only 28.5% of pregnant women in their sample received buprenorphine, 17.5% received methadone, and the remaining women received no medication or oxycodone. Just over 18% of women received referrals for medication treatment after their release from incarceration, and those who received prescription medications or prescribed medications while incarcerated got more referrals than those who did not receive medication while incarcerated. Those who came into the prison on medication were more likely to receive medication while incarcerated than those who were not already on medication when they came in. Women in the second and third trimesters of their pregnancy were more likely to receive medications than those in the first trimester. And those who used amphetamines prior to incarceration were also more likely to receive medication treatments while incarcerated. This type of exploratory study that uses pre-existing databases to help paint a picture of the current landscape is invaluable to understanding the problems within our systems of care. This season on the podcast, we will explore many different types of studies, all with one goal, to help us better prepare in the battle against opioid use disorder. Today's podcast episode highlighted how stigma can interfere with progress in our battle against the harms of opioid misuse. However, as Olson and Sharfstein argue, stigma around opioid use disorder is not inevitable. Changes in the language we use adoption of comprehensive treatment programs, and increased access to treatment in the criminal legal system can help limit this stigma. To fight the battle of the opioid epidemic, it is important for healthcare and criminal legal systems to destigmatize and increase access to life-improving and life-saving medications. This season, we will address stigma reduction by demystifying the science behind medication for opioid use disorder and also address the what comes next question. Like any big, complicated problem, there is no magic bullet, no easy answers. Addressing the opioid epidemic takes systems and cross-collaboration. It takes medical professionals, corrections professionals, researchers, peer navigators, and many others to make it work. We hope that these podcasts will help spark ideas, questions, and the curiosity we'll need to help end the harm wrought by the opioid epidemic. That wraps another episode of the Aced It podcast. We thank you for listening to Aced It, where we translate science into sense. Also remember, you can find one-page summary overviews written in plain language and short knowledge bursts, which are 30-second overviews, for all the research we cover on this podcast on our website, www.jcoinctc.org. Our conveniently packaged research summaries may help you remember what you heard here, and they will help you translate this research to your staff, friends, students, or colleagues. Additionally, we'd like to thank NIDA, Dr. Faye Taxman, and all the students and staff at ACE, including our podcast mastermind doctoral candidate, Shannon Magnuson, who is the brainchild behind this podcast. Oh, wait, two more quick things. 
If you're a researcher and you'd like us to consider using one of your research articles or reports for an upcoming podcast, please send it to me, Danielle, at d-r-u-d-e-s at gmu.edu. If you'd like to support our podcast to keep the sense coming, please tell your friends and colleagues about us or assign this podcast to your students or staff. Thanks again, and please tune in again soon for another informative episode of the ACE-DIT podcast, Translating Science into Sense.